August 18th, 2013, lecture discussion number 121 on the Book of Romans. I've got to do a little internet business before I get going here. First off is that there will be no lectures on August 25th and September 1st, so that Lori and I can uh, battle uh, my mom's estate and see if we can get it uh, behind us. I don't think we will, but we'll come close. And the other thing that I want to do is I want to read a message uh, that I got from a gentleman uh, because it fits in quite a bit today, uh, and uh, um, just as, as I said, I'm always amazed you folks out there read me or write to me and leave me messages that uh, just dovetail right into what I'm doing. Uh, so you think ahead of me all the time. And this is a gentleman uh, from Western New York, and so let me read it to you. I came home to it, I think, on Tuesday or Wednesday. Hello, Stephen Cronister. This is Bob. And he gave his last name, but I won't do it. This is Bob from Western New York. I am calling to thank you for tearing apart my finely crafted illusion that I had a good handle on God's word. If you'd like to gloat, you can give me a call. And he gave his phone numbers, uh, phone number. And and then he was very kind after that. Uh, and Bob, I, I really appreciate it. It made me laugh a lot. And uh, I have uh, I have left the same message, but I left it to a man named uh, Dr. Uh, Mike Hayes. Uh, almost, golly, 40 years ago now. Holy mackerel, honey child, it is. It's 40 years ago. I had to say the same thing to him. So we all have to say the same thing. And, and that's really, really a, a, a wonderful letter to get and a, a great compliment. And um, I would never gloat, Bob. Because uh, I know where I was, and um, I know how I started, and what a mess. Uh, it, all the work that it took uh, for my case to clean me up. So I'm grateful to him, obviously, and uh, and I'm just passing it forward, I guess. So don't ever think that, uh, that anyone would ever gloat over you uh, discovering what is essentially typology in the Old Testament. I, I don't know, Bob, but I'll guarantee you um, what what he's talking about is the typology that is hidden, the pictures that are hidden in the Old Testament. And those pictures help you figure out what's going on in the New Testament. If you don't have the compliments, then you never understand your Bible. The worst thing the church ever did was hand out New Testaments without the Old Testament. That was a horrible decision. It almost said that the Old Testament had no value, which the Old Testament is of critical value. Uh, and people meaning well do some foolish things, as you know. So, okay, anyway, uh, I, I, I'm in a fine mess. It's another, well, Ollie, a fine mess I've gotten myself into once again. If you know who Ollie is, don't raise your hand. I, I've managed to pile up so much stuff. What I actually did is I promised to address so many topics today that I can't possibly succeed. I've overpromised and underperformed again. That's what's going to happen. Uh, this is what I said I would do. I would, I would deal with the mysteries of the two offered wines during the crucifixion. Oh, by the way, for the internet people, there is no roof on this building. And the road noise is where there is no roof. So those of you who are concerned about the road noise, it is because, uh, the roof has fallen in. And uh, that's why we hear the cars. I didn't realize how bad it was until I started getting uh, notified. And it is bad. And it it is all over the... Uh, very difficult to hear. Do they think they'll get the roof fixed? There is nothing there but uh, right now but 
of visqueen. That's all there is. So a seagull that dive bombs will come right through that and get every one of us. Uh, so be ready. Uh, but that's why there is so much road noise, and it's just really discouraging, I know, for you out on the uh, Internet. But we just can't do anything about it. Uh, we're parasites here, uh, feeding on the host. But I have said that I would take on the mystery of the two offered wines. You know, Christ was given two wines uh, that he had to... To, to uh, well, obviously he intended for those wines to be offered to him, and how he dealt with them—a very, very significant piece of the crucifixion. Um, and I also said I would do the totality today of Christ's seven sayings. They form this magnificent—oh, uh, uh, golly, uh, um, I don't know how to explain it—but it's this picture. Uh, it's this just whole unit. They, they are not to be separated out ever. And then I also kept going to, to the question of why is there more power required to forgive sins as opposed to resurrecting the dead or healing the maimed. It's important to know as well that Christ did not just heal people that had a limp. He healed people that had no legs. He grew legs for them. He put eyes in their, in their faces. Uh, not just the leprosy, it was uh, the maimed, the soldiers that had come back that had been mutilated. And then uh, the three blasphemies of the lost uh, thief who said, uh, said from the cross, it's identified as blasphemy. So important to know that it's there. If you ever want a definition of blasphemy, just go to Luke 23. It says right there that he blasphemes Christ. And he says, if you are God, save yourself and save me. There's three blasphemies there and one total blasphemy. To say to Christ, to say to God, if you are God, that's blasphemy. To say to save yourself when he is of no, he has no sin, he's of no need to be saved, and then to add save us as well. That is all defined as blasphemy and that is, uh, and it is condemned by scripture as such. Why is save us, by the way, um, condemned by scripture? That becomes an important question that I said I would answer today. The ability to equalize omnipotence or what's called the Hebrews 5-7 question. The uh, who, him who is able clause of Hebrews 5-7 causes all kinds of problems, um, and people write me all the time to explain it. Um, Hebrews 5-7. They also tell me I say um too much. And anyway, and so, <coughs> and okay. I mentioned that to Janine, who is now, people from Australia, Janine, are going to want to know who you are. It's what happens here. But anyway, uh, uh, see, there's that anyway. Him who is able is Hebrews 5-7. And that is the equalization of omnipotence. And you've heard it done many, many times. It's also the capacity to, to move omnipotence. Does that make sense? Or lack of a better phrase, can omnipotence be moved? You might have heard it. It's a silly, um, it's like who made God. Can God... God being defined as unmakeable, and then you ask, can I make the unmakeable? Of course I can't. Uh, that's a silly question that is elementary. But you've heard it said all the time, can God make a, a something that is immovable um, and, and then move it? So th- what that is is the equalization of omnipotence or the capacity to move omnipotence. And that is addressed in Hebrews 5.7. Uh, I said I would do that. And then I also said uh, that uh, Psalms 22.1 and the Yom Kippur goat for Azazel uh, connection. 
And Azazel is, uh, as you know, is Satan himself. It is not scapegoat. That is a mistranslation in Leviticus. It is, in fact, Satan. Azazel is a person. Uh, and what that has to do with why Christ uh, screamed out, not screamed out, yelled out would be better, or just spoke in a very loud voice would be great, uh, would be perfect. Uh, why he did uh, say that in the fourth and the seventh sayings. You see, the loudness of the fourth saying and the seventh saying of Christ from the cross. Why are those two of the seven saying said with so much volume, deafening, thunderous, worldwide? I'm going to prove to you today that they were heard throughout the entire world, and the Bible says so. As was, uh, as was the same thunderings, if you will, in Exodus. And then, now, if they're said worldwide, if I am correct, and what's the, what's the answer to, are you correct, if I am correct? Of course, of course I am. I mean, who would think otherwise? But if I am correct, uh, whom, to whom were those two loud sayings directed? We can figure out the ones that he said normally, if you will. We can know, obviously he said them loud enough for somebody to write them down. All of them. But two of them were extraordinarily loud. So to whom were those two phrases, the fourth and the seventh, uh, directed? What did the multitude at the base uh, of the cross see? They saw something. Luke 23, um, uh, 48 through 49, I believe. I'll check it again for you. Yes, 48, 49. Um, they, they saw something there. And it frightened them, I believe. And it caused them to flee and caused anguish and caused fear. They they returned. I think they returned on a dead run. And we'll get back to, I'll, I'll try to make that case uh, as well. And notice that I just connected Exodus 19.16, Exodus 20.18 to Luke 23.48-49 and Luke 18.13. Uh, that is, they're seeing something, hearing something, and it frightens them. That happened in Exodus, and it happened at the base of the cross. So you have this connection between the marriage ceremony of God in Israel in Exodus and the crucifixion of Christ, okay? And the standing afar off or at a distance and the beating of the breast. You'll see that also uh, in Luke 18, 13 with the tax collector. He stands afar off. He doesn't want to go near um, anyone. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ says, that's the one that is saved. So the afar off, at a distance element is not only in Exodus, but it's also in Luke 23. So you see that connection. But anyway, they all saw something. Everybody that was there, something magnificent. What did they see? Some were, were afraid when they saw it and ran or left. And the others did not. They stayed. So what is the difference between those who leave and those who stay? It doesn't make sense that they would leave. Why would you see something, whatever it was they saw? And I, I hope I can solve that for you today. If you see that, why would you leave? But they did. And we need to know why. The Romans didn't leave. The execution detail, what did they do? They glorified God. I'll tell you how they did it. They fell on their faces, but they didn't leave. But the Pharisees and the political leaders and all the people of Jerusalem, and there was a multitude, thousands there. This was a big event. They all left. Not the Romans, not the disciples, not the women of Galilee. They stayed off at a distance. But they all saw it. What did they see? How do we humans, let's ask this question, glorify the Lord God Almighty? See, that's important. How do the angels glorify or minister? How do we minister to God? 
So I said I would uh, I would get into that a little bit too last week. See, all these people came up to me and said uh, you got to do this. Supper Dave, he he came up and he said you got to do the floating accent, floating accent, floating accent. He said it now for three weeks in a row, and he's absolutely right. That's Elijah, Second Kings six, and that's Second Kings two, and that's Second Kings one. And Big Blue, when he, he wasn't here this week or last week, but the previous week he came up. He said no, you got to do Matthew four, Matthew four, Matthew four. And both are, are correct, both wise to note that any discussion of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that Christ yells out, in a, says in a very loud voice, which is quoting of Psalm 22.1, any discussion of that will ultimately bring the floating axe head to Matthew 4, the two trees of Genesis, right, same thing, Genesis 15, Genesis 2.8 is the two trees, Genesis 15, and Matthew um, Four will bring us, and all of Genesis will bring us to Matthew 27, 46, and Matthew 27, 46 brings us to Luke 23, 48 through 49, which is what they saw. Now, you, you might remember, and you might not, you might not have been here. Uh, I could ask you to raise your hands, but never raise your hands during this lecture. The precious axe head, a guy had it. It's precious. It's the only one in the entire crew. They're building a building, a temple with it. It's the only metal axe head. And he's got it. And he's cutting down timbers next to the Jordan River. And the axe head comes loose from the handle. And the axe head falls into the middle of the Jordan River. And it is very deep at those days. And it sinks to the bottom. And he is now in despair because he knows he cannot pay for it. In fact, he is doomed. There is no way he can pay for it. There is, he, does, he cannot live long enough. He cannot work hard enough to ever pay for that accent. It was that precious in those times. That's the story. And the, it's in the Jordan River. And you know Jordan River, the river that descends, the descender into death and judgment is what all of that name means. Joshua 3.16 says the river starts at the city of Adam or starts at Adam and descends into death uh, and judgment, the sea of death and judgment. That's where it goes. You, you see that picture, I hope, or what we would call now the Dead Sea. And there was no solution, no way to retrieve the lost precious axe head that the man that lost it was doomed, except Elijah was there. Elisha, I'm sorry, was there. And he cuts a branch. And you see Christ always called the branch, the branch, the branch of David. He's always referred to as the branch. He cuts a branch and he throws the branch into the Dead Sea River. That ultimately is the same exact spot that Christ is baptized. That's the same exact spot that the Ark of the Covenant is, is put as the nation of Israel goes into the promised land, the second generation. But anyway, enough of that. It goes into the Dead Sea River of judgment and the lost axe head floats to the surface. And you see the picture that the soul of that man is the axe head, is what the axe head is representing. Our soul, if you will, our spirit soul, our immaterial, our our uh, supernatural portion that is us. Not the physical, but the non-physical, the metaphysical. So this is a picture of the solution to sin and death. And something that Elisha, by the way, does over and over and over again to make sure you know that there's a solution to you losing your soul to sin and death. There's a way to get it back. 
Something's got to be thrown into the river to make it float back up. Something's got to deal with sin and death. I have to have a solution to physical and spiritual death. And 2 Kings 6 has this incredible verse. It's verse 6. As that axe head floats to the surface, Elisha does not go get it. It's sitting there on the surface, floating, which is an impossibility, right? Except that's the point. And Elisha says to the man, pick it up for yourself. So the man, who had lost his soul, it says, reached out his hand and took it. And the implications of that verse are astonishing, to say the least. When you understand the typology and you understand, pick it up for yourself and who Elisha represents, you know that this is something really amazing happening here. There's some doctrine today, um, some doctrine there, and today I don't have time to do it because it requires that I cover the age of accountability. Do you understand why? How old are you before you are accountable for your sin and your rejection of God? You're looking at me like I'm crazy, but reach down and pick it up yourself leads you into a discussion on accountability. Because obviously this is a man who had lost, who was lost. Which means what? You have to ask, you have to inject time. When did he become lost? So that's why accountability comes in. But anyway, uh, uh, just keep in mind the Second Kings 6 is so important to Luke 23, 48, and 49. Elisha, again, is a prophecy of Christ. And he portrays and discusses, if you will, by the things he does, Christ's crucifixion. He's one of the great types of Christ in all of the Old Testament. Um, maybe Moses and Adam, Joseph, David might be ahead of him, but he's right there. Okay? Uh, if there's it possible for any to be ahead of any. But all of those, uh, um, Zechariah comes to mind. And uh, Zechariah solves why Judas threw the, uh, the money at the temple potter. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these guys that are were directed by God to portray Christ. And all of those books of the Bible, the Old Testament, are filled with portraits of Christ. When you understand that, every page, there he is, every single page. When you understand that, then you know now, okay, all i got to do to solve why he said Psalm 22.1 is figure out, go to these typologies, go to these prophecies, figure out where they fit, how it's all done. What they did that, that leads me to Psalm 22.1, in this case, Matthew 27. Okay? So how can I possibly do all of that? That's the today's sermon. Okay, it's 5,000 words. Can I talk fast enough to get through that so that you can get a piece of cake? Maybe. What we have to do is at least make a list. I'll just knock it off as fast as I can. And then we'll make a dent into the... I'm going to start with the totality of the seven things that Jesus said from the cross. First, you have to know he said seven things. And then, as I said last week, you have to know that you can't separate them. They're a unit. You can't pull it apart and focus on one thing. If you do that, you're going to miss the meaning of all the seven. So there's there's two things that when I put this list up, two things that we that have to be remembered before I even make the list. The first thing you have to know is the crucifixion of Christ occurs in the Garden of Golgotha. Okay? 
He has two gardens that he loves. One is the Garden of Gethsemane. The other is the Garden of Golgotha, not Golgotha. Golgotha is an idiom. It's like pidgin English, if you will. It's like a a cut-apart language. We have made it into Golgotha. It is not Golgotha. It's Golgotha. We have lost the significance of Goliath there. It's the Garden of Goliath. Not just Goliath, it's the place of the skull. And even we, You'll know that, right? It says so. It's the place of the skull. Whose skull? It's Goliath's skull. That's why it's called the Garden of Goliath. Goliath's skull is there. And so you have to know immediately that the crucifixion occurs in the Garden of Golgoliath on the exact spot where King David buried the skull of Goliath. Once you know that, you're ready to make your list. And that's 1 Samuel 17, 54. And the two of the seven things that Christ said were loud beyond anything we can imagine. Number four was very loud, and number seven was very loud. You've got to know that. So when you start out with those two things, now you can make your list, right? So let's do that. And by the way, the fact that those two are very loud should tell you that they have a connection between them, right? Why did he select those two and make those very loud? How come it's the fourth and the seventh? By the way, could he have done the first and the third? But he does the fourth and the seventh. What's in between the fourth and the seventh? Do you think there's an accident here? This is all predetermined before he made time, he says in Revelation. Before I make time, before I created time, before I have time, matter, energy, and space, the created order, before the created order was created, he designed his plan of salvation. So, first thing he says of the seven things. Father, forgive them. Obvious question is who's the them and them? Who is the them? Are you the them? You are not the them. Who was the them? Who was there? What's your choices? Somebody got forgiven, because when he says, Father, forgive them, they got forgiven. That's not a question. That's a direct statement. Definitive statement. Today you will be with me. That's the second thing he said. If you were the them or the one that gets to be with him, how are you doing? You're hanging in there pretty good, aren't you? You got on two good places. So I have the them and I have whoever is with me. Now, we know the second thief is the with me. So he's in a pretty good place, isn't he? Now, the third thing he said is he said, Woman, behold John. Now, you will think your Bible will, will sometimes have the word son there. Behold your son. He's not talking about himself. By the way, that really helps you when you're trying to figure out Psalm 21. Because he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me is not capitalized. Me is tiny. Little me. Little son. Woman, behold John. And then he says, John, behold woman. Now, why did he do that? And why is the perfect place for it to be after the with me and after the Father forgive him, them? See, it's logical. It makes logical sense. 
First he says, Father, forgive them. Oh, that makes logical sense. Then he says, today you will be with me. That makes perfect sense. Now the, the most... The most amazing thing to say that follows a wonderful order is now is the place to put woman, behold John, and John, behold woman. You're all with me so far, right? <laughs> Just pretend for the person sitting next to you, so that, that'll be good. It, it, it'll make them feel uh, <laughs> intimidated. Yeah, very good. And then in a very, very loud, my God, my God. Oops. I have to use the big eraser. My God, my God. He said it so loud, I can't even begin to explain. Why have you forsaken? And, oh, I, I can't do it that way, can I? Got to hurry. Why? What's why? What kind of word is why? What do I use the word why in? I have an English teacher. Should I identify her? So you'll all feel really bad. I won't. 21 years teaching English to junior high kids. A windler. Okay, now, now you're all, all impressed. I know I am. My God, my God, why? What's he doing? He's asking a question. Why did he ask why? Why did he ask a question? Why have you forsaken me? Have you, capitalized, forsaken me? That's the correct way to write it. And then he said, I thirst. And you gotta compare that to Matthew 4. Oops. And I'll get to where else here in a minute. It is done. Or it is completed. It is finished. And Father, again, very loud. Very loud. Father, I am sending my spirit into your hands. I am delivering, committing. I commit. I am committing. The two ends in commit. My spirit into your hands. Okay? Those are the seven saints. Now, I've truncated them a bit, so um, um, and I did it on purpose to slightly reflect the context that they have in which they are said. It's especially the case with number three. I did that. Uh, let's make sure I didn't flip the page here. I did. To illustrate them another way, uh, again, I want you to, uh, I'll say them a, a different way to help you understand this pattern. Father, save the Roman execution detail. Yes, a question from the audience. Hi, how are you? Are you pregnant? Yes. Does everyone know it? Yes, they do. You're welcome. Okay. Little me. Matthew 4. I thirst. What ha why did I put Matthew 4 there? 
Because he's out in the wilderness for how many days? Forty. He doesn't eat. Doesn't need any water. In the desert. So he's proved his, he's proved to you many, many times that it is impossible for him to be thirsty. When he says thirsty, he doesn't mean thirsty like you mean thirsty. By the way, when he suffers, he doesn't suffer like we suffer. When we say suffer and he says suffer, it's a wholly different suffer. Don't ever anthropomorphize yourself and, or anthropomorphize Christ and put your, your feelings or your thoughts into him. He's God, you're not, and you're not going to get it right doing that. And it's a big mistake. Cause you big problems. So yes, that's a very good question. Did you hear what she said? Thank you for answering. Evidence for you folks on the internet that I do, in fact, answer questions. In spite of my worldwide reputation. Okay. Father, say, forgive the Romans, which is the same thing as save the Romans, right? And you will be with me is the same thing as I'm saving you, right? So I start out with save, save. I save the Romans, I save the thief. And then what do I do to the woman? What is he doing to the woman? By the way, who is the woman? Literally, who is she? It's Mary. But he doesn't call her Mary. He calls her woman. Now, why? Doesn't he know who she is? He's omniscient God. He knows who she is. So he calls her woman. Why does he call her woman? And then he says this word every time you see this word, you just go, holy mackerel, honey, child, something is happening. I have to stop. I have to look at this and figure out what this is because he is saying, woman, something extraordinary is now going to happen, John. And then he says, John, something extraordinary is about to happen, woman. So something amazing is happening here. Save, save, something amazing is happening to the woman. Who is the woman literally? Mary. Who is she figuratively? And why John? Why not Peter? Why not Thomas? Why does he assign her to John? Because he does. That's an assignment, a transference, if you will. He's transferring the woman or assigning the woman to the Apostle John. What's unique about the Apostle John besides John always calls himself the one who Christ loved? He always called himself the favorite. Why did John get the woman? Answer that question and you got it. You want a clue? John was the only one of the twelve who was not executed. That's how come he got the woman. Who is? It's John's job to take care of the woman. What does that mean? Who is Mary portrayed here? It's something extraordinary. And then he is thirsting. After he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a loud voice, very loud, let's ask a question. Uh, that he is, There is a forsaking of someone happening here. Who is that someone that's being forsaken? That's the question. 
Who is forsaken? It's a proclamation that somebody is being forsaken. He proclaims it just like the town crier, if you want to think of it this way. He's in a loud, these are proclamations, both of those. He says them so loud that you cannot miss that they're proclamations. Someone is being forsaken. Who's the, what's the obvious question? Did anyone there think it was Christ? Some did. They're wrong. Question here is, who is it that's being forsaken? Father, I commit my spirit. It's another proclamation. Who is he proclaiming this to? Who is he proclaiming that one to? Number four, number seven. He has a specific group of people in mind for both of them, right? Now, after my God, that proclamation, he's now thirsty. He's thirsting for someone because he does not thirst for water. He is the living water. It's just like he is the salvation. He, he can't be saved and he can't be thirsty. Not the way we are. He thirsts differently than we thirst. He suffers differently than we suffer. He weeps never for himself. We always weep for ourselves. So he's thirsting for someone. What's the question? Who is the someone? So we start out, who is forsaken? Who is the someone? And then he says, it's done. What's done? The solution is done. The solution to what? Who is being forsaken? Who is he thirsting for? What solution? Solution to what? And then finally, number seven, the proclamation of completion of the solution that he said is done is now being proclaimed. In other words, he has announced the solution, but now he has to do something with the solution. And he's announcing that he's about to do something with that solution. Okay, does that make sense? He is now the second goat, or the goat for Azazel, or the goat of Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. Very important that Azazel, that you know, is Satan himself. It's a person. It does not mean scapegoat. For those of you who have that translation. Okay, so there you go. Now, let's ask a bunch of questions that we, some we've asked before, but they need repeating. I, was, uh, I used to tell my students that teaching is repeating and uh, repeating the repeating. If I repeat every day, I've done something really valuable to you. I always get this from the Internet. What kind of person goes to this lecture? They want to know. Okay. Uh, how many nurses do I have here? Let me count you. One, two, uh, three, uh, four. I think there's there's five of you total, isn't there, Lindsay? How many is there? Five or six of you. I see uh, one's not in here right now. But uh, so we have nurses, we have teachers, we have athletes, we have construction workers, and we have military. Okay, that's what we got. And 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 florists. You're the hugest part here. You're you're twenty five. You're not florists, are you? What are you? Oh, bookkeeper. My fault. <laughs> so we know we we know who gets arrested eventually, don't we? It's always the bookkeeper. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the bookkeepers. Okay, <laughs> but it is funny to understand that uh, you know. Um, I just think of all of us that have been in the teaching uh, field. Uh, myself, of course, and Bill and Troy, and uh, just a, a big group of us here. But uh, that's why I repeat, because um, I have been taught to repeat, and then to repeat the repeat. And, and I know that it's, it's a valuable thing to do, and it works. And I am aware 
but I also know that I have to solve things differently every time. Not everyone can find the same solution, so that's what I do. I try to change the solution for you as much as I can, so maybe it'll, it'll reach you. Who ever learns anything by hearing? How, what percentage? Very small. You, you learn by doing it yourself. I'm very good at this. How come? I write 5,000 words a week. If you did that, you'd be very good. I'm the best Bible student here. I can't help it. I've been doing it for 20 years, as you know, almost uh, uh, with this group. So I have to come up with a way for you to do it on your own. That's why I don't ask your question or answer your questions so much. Because I know how important it is for you to answer your own question. You will remember your answer. You will not remember my answer. Okay, and I'm aware that uh, so far this this is confusing. I'm trying to take a, a break here to give you a little bit of an emotional break. Hopefully some of you are still conscious. So I'm looking around. It's close. About now I ask the ushers, will you come forward and collect the first... And I, people say, you really do this. I say, yes, I do. I hand out drool buckets and they hang around their necks. And when they get filled up, the ushers come and they grab them and they take them and they replace them. It's part of being the usher here. So will the ushers please come forward and collect the buckets of drool and replace them with new buckets? So just just hang in there if you can. This is eventually going to clear up. I know it will. It happened to me. Bob from New York. I mean, I, I Anna, bless her heart, she's leaving for Guam. She had the greatest line of any I could ever get out of a child. She's probably 25 at the time, which means she's still a child. She came in very angry and slamming her hand on the table and really upset. I did not intend to have a mediocre life. <laughs> yes, we all laughed. We still laugh. What a great t-shirt. I did not intend to have a mediocre life. Well, guess what, honey? <laughs> None of us intended that. My whole point is, is that I know that you can get to where you want to be as a Bible student every single time. You can do what I am doing. I just have to get you there. I am I am a, just an average man. There's a great pastor, by the way, who said something wonderful. He said, I did not become a good pastor or a good teacher of the Bible until it occurred to me that God did not intend for me to be a great man. That's profound. Once you figure out who you are, Bill and I laugh every day on the way to work. And we always say, and if he was here today, he would tell you. Every day we say, we look at each other and say, what are we doing today, Bill? Same thing we do every day, Pinky. We, we continue our mediocre lives. And we're happy about that. We are. Be satisfied. Okay, so you're going to make it. But just in case I run out of time, like I always run out of time, here's the pattern that, if you will, understand that this is what. Why did Christ do these seven things? Why did he say them? He has a plan. His plan is in those seven things. He is on the cross, and what is he doing? He's teaching. This is a lecture. He puts seven things in this particular order. He, he yells out two of them, if you will, or two of them. He elevates the volume of his voice to the point where it is painful. But it is a sermon. 
It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. There's one thing that he says. It's seven parts. One thing that he says. So you have to know, it's critical that he was, that you understand that this is a lesson, a preaching while on the cross, a methodical, ordered, purpose dissertation. It's very short, not because he needed it to be, but because he wanted it to be. There's a difference. He went step by step as he always does. He has his Hebrew betrothal steps, those 12 patterns, uh, 12 step pattern. He has a seven step Passover pattern, and he has his seven sayings from the cross pattern. It follows the Passover pattern, by the way, but I don't have time to do that today. Okay? So here I'm going to give it to you a different way. Saved, saved. Israel transferred. Weeping for the lost. Because who's at the base of his cross? Thousands of them. And he's going to show them something that is should have saved everyone. And it didn't. That should forever put the rest. God, if you would only show yourself to me, I would be saved. No. He does it. Before he does it, he weeps for them because he knows he's going to complete the solution. Okay? So he weeps for the lost and then comes the solution, the floating of the axe head. That's what this means. I'm now floated the axe head up to the surface of the water. I have solved sin and death. And now all you have to do is what? Pick it up. Reach down and pick it up. But he knows how many are going to do it because he's omniscient God, isn't he? And then the proclamation to Satan. I have solved what you said at Matthew 4 was unsolvable. I have solved what you said at Ezekiel 16, 28.16. What you said was unsolvable at 28.16 at Ezekiel. It's called the second goat of Yom Kippur or the um, goat for Azazel. Okay? And the defeat of Azazel is established. Leviticus 16.8, First uh, Peter 3.19. Okay? There you go, in case I don't have time. How am I doing? How much time I got? Okay, I'm going to take 20. As is always the case, and I'm hoping that by just knowing or hearing the questions, you're then able to successfully navigate all the landmines and the booby traps that men and organizations, when I say organizations, I mean religious organizations, all these land, these booby trap things that they want you to step on, what they've laid everywhere, and they're all over the place, and they put them there for their own purposes, and mostly they're there to steal money from the weak, and they've done it for centuries in every church. The richest guy in the city has always been the pastor or the priest. And they put all of this nonsense out there and everybody believes it and they repeat the same tactics every time. They follow the exact same methodology because those methodologies are effective. The cash rolls in. That's what they're doing. That's why he cleaned out the temple, right? He walked into a temple and what are they doing in there? They're selling salvation and he cleans it out because salvation has to be free. You can't pay for a sacrifice. Sacrifice is free. He's the sacrifice. He knows it's free. 
He's decided it's free because it has to be free because it's too valuable. You can't ever earn it. You're back to the axe head again. But man and organizations, they've, they got a cash machine. They call it the church. And so our first question that needs to be asked about the crucifixion of Christ is this. I hope I've made the case for you already. Who's in control of the crucifixion process? Now, by the way, while you're answering that question, ask yourself, who does the contemporary church today say is in control of the crucifixion? Because I'll promise you, they most of the time, okay, or not most of the time, that would not be fair to them. 99.94% of the time, they're wrong who they say is in control of the crucifixion. So answer that. Who is in control of the crucifixions? I'll help you. It's multiple choice. Here's your choices. And you've got to pick. So when I read them off, you select an answer. Are the Roman execution squad in control of the crucifixion? That's A. Circle A. B. The Jewish people. That's just the common people. They're there. They're at the base of the cross. There's thousands of them. Are they in control of the crucifixion? Are they making the decisions? The disciples, the followers of Christ, C, are they making the decisions and in control of the crucifixion? D, the Pharisees in the political class, are they making all the decisions? Are they in control? E, nobody's in control. It's all chaos. Happenstance, luck. I'll keep going. F, Satan, is he in control of it and his fallen angelic realm? Or if not him, how about the unfallen angels? Are they in control of it? G. Here comes H. Duh. Is God in control of his own crucifixion? Obviously he is. By the way, those of you who think all of the above is possible, it's not possible. All of the above is impossible. So who's in control? Make your decision. Once you make that decision, it changes how you read the Bible. Because now you have to read it correctly, that God is in control of his own uh, crucifixion. It always seemed obvious to me since I was a little boy, uh, I think, that uh, that it's God himself being crucified, that he is in absolute total control. That seemed to make the most sense. Total, complete authority at all times over everything. There is nothing he's not in control of. Not Simeon, the Serenian that has to carry the crossbeam, the, the two wines that one he drinks, one he doesn't drink, or doesn't drink and then he drinks. No, there's nothing he's not in control of. He's in controlling it all. He's God. But realize, hardly anyone thinks that today. I will tell you, you will, if you went to that you went to any church in town, you would not get answer G, or H, sorry. You would not get duh. God. What, are you kidding? So how is it that we don't understand that? Why is that the case today? Uh, I just ask you this. Who benefits from the from any of the others? Because the others permeate our churches today. All you got to do is watch the media every every Easter. Somebody will say something that is profoundly stupid. They will say, the Jews are Christ killers. Or they'll say the Romans are Christ killers. You cannot be more ignorant than that because Christ is God. You cannot, a human being cannot kill God. He has to give up his own life and it specifically says that's what he does. That's number seven. You can't kill me. What are you, crazy? 
Are you ignorant? The answer is, yes. Yes, we are. We can make money off of that. It's ridiculous, it's absurd, but it is common thinking because it benefits somebody to promote it. And that's why we have it. But in contrast, it glorifies God to place him in his rightful place of uh, authority, of complete control. Now, the rest of the questions start to become easy once you've figured out that one. When you've answered that one right, the rest of them start to lay down for you. Why did God, Jesus Christ, taste the but not drink the first wine that he was given by the Romans. The Romans tried to give him some wine, and they poisoned it. And he tasted it, but he didn't drink it. Okay? Why? Immediately, that's 27 of Matthew 27, 34. Immediately, you should say, somebody offered, he calls himself something besides you know, Jesus Christ means uh, uh, literally salvation, Messiah, or anointed of God. Salvation, anointed of God, um, that's his name. You can call him Sal if you wish. But uh, Yeshua in the Hebrew, Jesus as we say it, means salvation. Okay? But his other name is what? The other name that he uses all the time that he really likes, besides the I am, which means he's outside of time and the creator of time. He's in the present. You're never in the present. You only have a past and a future. You never have a present. If you think you do have a present, you don't. Measure your present. Put your stoplight. Don't think you're getting something out of Lindsay's uh, baby shower either. You're not. She gets all the presents. But, but if you push the stopwatch, how fast has your present gone by? And become past. You do not. He does. That's why he calls himself the I am. That's why he calls himself the ancient of days. All of those have everything to do with him being the creator of time, right? Now, the other thing that he calls himself is the second or the last Adam. Because the first Adam was the first federal head. And, and I've covered this many times. I won't define federal head. But it means representation. The first Adam was the federal head. And he took the poison. Here I have the last Adam. Now, what's he doing? He takes the poison. They were both given poison. One given by the woman. And, then, and I had a, a lady call me the other day, or talk to me the other day, saying, would you please do your Adam and Eve in a book? Because it is an amazing story when you realize that Adam, how much time he took to take that poison, what he had to think of. What happens if I don't take the poison? What happens if I do take the poison? What happens to me? What happens to her? What happens to Satan? If he takes the poison, um, then he is at least with her. And she tells him, by the way, don't forsake me. She says to him, save me, don't forsake me. And you see that now showing up again right here. If he, he can't save her. By the way, if he tries to save her, uh, the only way he can save her is to die in her place and give his blood. Her blood is poison. Gives his blood for her blood. Then what does she do 20 minutes later? Goes back and drinks the poison again. Think teenage boy. Okay, so he can't do that, and he knows that. He knows Satan fooled her once, he'll fool her again. The only person in all of history besides Christ that was not fooled by Satan is the first Adam. That is one incredible human being. Second Timothy 2.14. Anyway, Christ calls himself the last... Oh, let me finish that. So the only thing he can do 
is drink the poison with her. At least if he's side by side, he could keep her from going to the second tree. And that's what he does. So it is an amazing story, very complex. The absolute opposite of every book you've ever read and everything you've ever heard. Now, Christ calls himself the last Adam. So we see this poison. i got to go over here. It's not on the board. We see this poison happen again. That's what's so significant about the first wine. The Romans give him the poison. And he doesn't drink it. But he tastes it. Does he need to taste it? He knows it's poison. By the way, can the poison kill God? Please, please get this right. No. No. Okay. So, he knows that too, doesn't he? We see this repeat of the taking of the poison. And, and by the way, Adam calls Eve saved. And God calls the Romans saved. What a coincidence. Who wrote this Bible? Whoever he was was really lucky. God is so lucky. He gets so many things perfectly right. It's just luck. It's got to be. Please don't write me from the internet. That was sarcasm. Sarcasm on, sarcasm off. I have to remember to say that. Okay. Some people don't, don't understand sarcasm and you have to help them. That is sarcasm. Okay. <laughs> Let me. <coughs> okay. We see this repeat of Genesis 3-6 right here, which we'd expect from the last Adam. He's the only one that will can be Adam, the federal head. And now that's why, again, he adds humanity. We have all of that uh, to deal with. But why didn't the Romans, this is a really bad question, why didn't the Romans take him, throw him to the ground, pry open his mouth, and pour the poison down? People ask me, hold him down, pour it down his throat against his will. Why didn't they think of that? They did think of that. I guarantee you they thought of it. Would it work? <laughs> you see, the answer is against his will. Jesus Christ is omnipotent God in the flesh. It is impossible to force him to do anything. He's, he is in authority. His will is always in authority. Why did he taste it? As omniscient God, he knew what was in it. Obviously, he is tasting it because of the same reason he's doing these seven things. It's part of his crucifixion. He's teaching you something. He's teaching you. He's teaching the people that are watching and he's teaching the people that is, that is uh, listening and, and reading him about him. So what is he teaching exactly? Who is he teaching it to? Notice in John 19, 29... Jesus drinks the second wine. He doesn't drink the first one. He drinks the second. Both times he does the opposite of what the crowd wants. The first time they all want him to drink it, he doesn't. But he does taste it so they can see him taste it. The second time they don't want him to drink it and he does. Why does he do the opposites? It's, it's immediately obvious that he's doing what he wants, not what they want. Again, the control element is being declared for you. He is in control. His ways are the opposite of our ways, by the way. He's demonstrating that control, same as he does with Simeon. I make the comment that he's twirling the crossbeam like it is a baton. It's better to say he is using the crossbeam as a pointer while he's lecturing. Think laser pointer, or you will, or the old wooden pointers. 
And, and he gives it to Simeon. He wants Simeon to have it. And by the way, the Romans want Simeon to have it. Thank you. But must hurry. Terry's holding up fingers now. These questions are not necessarily in order. Why does Christ say what he says in the manner and order that he says them? Is he doing it on purpose or is it chaos? He's doing it on purpose. It is not chaos. Dim's your two choices. Figure out that he's doing it on purpose and that he is in absolute control. So the fourth saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord God Almighty, creator of all things, John 1, 3, the judge of all things, John 5, 22, asks a question in a deafening voice that he knows the answer to. Omniscient God knows the answer to this question. It's the same reason he asked Adam, by the way, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Genesis 3.9, He asks questions not because he doesn't know the answer, precisely the opposite, because he does know the answer. Who doesn't know the answer? Us. We never know the answer. The worst answer you can ever have on this question is that Christ is the one being forsaken. He knows all things. He's infinite and he's omnipresent. It's impossible. What does forsaken mean? It means abandoned, to be left alone, isolated. He's omnipresent. He's infinite in size. How can you reconcile that with abandonment? How do you abandon infinity? Possible. It's impossible for him to be isolated or abandoned. God cannot be hidden from. See, if you isolate him, then that means you can do what? If you abandon him, that means you can do what? That means he's finite. And you can. I'm standing on my toes. Why am I doing that? I feel short, maybe. But you cannot abandon him. You cannot isolate him. Because if you can, then you, he's not infinite. And then if he's not infinite, then what can you do? You can hide from him. Can you hide from God? Can you flee from God? No. He cannot be forsaken because to make him forsaken is to make him finite. Does that make sense? Can't be true. So Christ cannot be forsaken. So then, actually, he, he asked this question. About who? Who feels abandoned by God? Who is abandoned by God? Who is forsaken by God? Who will say these words, my God, my God? Christ can't say them because they don't apply to them, to him. Just like he can't say, save me, that doesn't apply to him either. He cannot be saved and he cannot be forsaken. And back you are to Genesis 3, but let's skip that for now. Who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that. God will certainly not say these words about himself. Psalm 22.1 does not apply to God. So who does it apply to? It's said by David. Yeah. So again, to whom does it apply? And from where is it said? Where are they when they say it? Or whoever they are that says it. And is it ever true, by the way? Let's ask that. Does God ever forsake anybody? Is he a forsaker? No, he's a redeemer and a saver. And a judge. So does it even apply to him? Is it an insult? Let's take that down there for a second. The question becomes one on the nature, uh, nature of God. Who is at fault for sin? God or you or me? Usin? 
Who's at fault? That's easy. Why are so many headed for darkness? Is it God's will that any perish? Second Peter 3, 9 solves that for you. Why do people perish then? If God says that he is not willing that any perish, why do people perish? If God is saying, I wish that none are forsaken, why are people forsaken? If God says, I'm not willing that anyone says this, why do people say it? What causes this? So you end up with, why does God forsake? Who is forsaken? Why are they forsaken? When are they forsaken? Where are the forsaken? Who is saying this and why are they saying it? you got two choices. See, now I always give you multiple choice now. It's not an essay. Two choices. The ones that are saying this are genuinely repentant people. Where are they saying it from? Or they are somebody who is accusing God of being unjust. And they are saying it just like the wicked, rich Pharisee and Lazarus. They are saying it as God does not have the authority to judge them. Okay, I'm in trouble, aren't I? We will finish with what seems like a cafeteria food fight. I'm going to throw stuff everywhere. What sight did the Pharisees see when Christ said that seventh saying? What did they see? He says, Father, I commit my spirit. And then the Pharisees see something. After the second wine, after he drinks that second wine, they didn't want him to drink it, but he drinks it. After he says, I thirst, after he, and he can't thirst, John 4.13, after he says, it is done, after the final thing he says, they see something. He leaves. They see him leave. Everybody there sees him leave immediately. And they leave. The Pharisees leave. But the disciples stay and the Romans stay and they see it and they don't go. And the Romans worship and the disciples are at a distance. The key I submit is Luke 23, 44 through 45. There was darkness all over the earth for three hours. Darkness all over the earth for three hours. Then the sun was darkened. Now that's odd, isn't it? How can I have darkness all over the earth? And then the sun was darkness. By the way, that's why I know I have a loud voice all over the earth. Why was the sun darkened? What caused the three-hour darkness all over the earth? And then the sun is darkness. I submit that Christ did all of that to let them see who he really is, that he is the light of the world, he is the primable or the first light, and that he is leaving. And they got the, they, the lights turned out so you could see him go. And on the 8th of September, we will revisit... This and add in Matthew 27:49, Ezekiel 10, the departure of the Shekinah glory. It's a, as he leaves as it leaves Jerusalem. It is a picture of Christ on the cross. It's a slow process, by the way. Why does it take so much power to forgive sin? How much power would be necessary to remove Jesus Christ from His cross against His will? Those are both the, sort of the same question. How much power does it take to move Christ? I got to move Him. How much power do I have to have to move Him? How heavy is He? How big a forklift am I going to need? How big a bulldozer to move the omnipotent God? That, by the way, answers uh, able to save him in Hebrews 5.7. Could the Roman execution detail force Christ to do anything? How much force would they have to have? They obviously cannot force him. Omnipotent force is required to confront omnipotent force or infinite force. Forgiving sin requires knowing the sins. Who can know the totality 
even though it's finite still, of all the sins of the angelic realm and the physical reality, who can know all of that except God himself? When save me, which is what the thief said, is said to Christ in the context of save yourself, it is blasphemy. If you are God, save yourself and save me. The save me is blasphemy in that because you have already committed blasphemy twice. You have said, you're not God, you can't save yourself, therefore, you can't save me. In other words, you're not qualified to save anybody. That's what you've done. There is no solution to sin and death. No one is lost. We all go on in perpetuity in sin and evil. It means this. You, God, need to save yourself because you also sin. And therefore, you cannot judge me, so I too will be saved by default. That's why it's blasphemy. Save me because you are pure God and you are pure good. Uh, that's the opposite of blasphemy. Save me because you are pure God and pure good and I deserve to be forsaken. That's what we're supposed to say. That always results in us being saved. That's always answered. Exactly what that thief says. That's why he's saved. God is long-suffering, unwilling that any who call upon him should perish. Know that about him when you read the crucifixion. Let's rise, be dismissed. See you on September 8th.